Welcome back to another episode of Uncommentary. If you're a regular listener, as I know all of you are, uh, this is the time you'd normally hear an ad for Hearts and Minds books, but this is kind of a special episode. And so I don't have the bio ready. I don't have the ads ready. I don't have any of that kind of thing. Uh, this is probably going to be a live, uh, a live drop or nearly live drop. So my guest uh, on this episode is Judy Dominic, who currently lives in Dallas, Texas. Uh, bless you. Uh, and yeah. I, I, we've never met, right? I mean, we've never like knowingly, right. uh, seen each other and anything like that. Uh, so we we're no, Twitter I, friends. I only know you through Twitter. Yeah. That's right. So we're Twitter friends. Um, but as a result of the news, uh, with the coronavirus spread, uh, which is now, uh, WHO is calling a pandemic. Um, I wanted, I saw you tweeting something about it. I looked at your bio and thought, okay, this is the lady that I need to talk to, to, uh, inform me if nobody else, uh, about what's going on. So why don't you, Judy Dominic, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Um, I am a native Houstonian. I am, uh, was born and raised there and I basically was in Houston all my life. Went to Rice University, graduated with a degree in history, but wanted to, um, work overseas on the mission field. And so I thought I would pursue a degree in public health. And so I went to the University of Texas School of Public Health and um, got a master's in epidemiology with a focus in infectious diseases. But um, long story short, I ended up deciding that that was not um, going to be my career choice. And I ended up pursuing a, a more clinical pathway through Baylor College of Medicine and became a physician assistant and worked in cancer care. Oh for seven and a half years, uh, from 2000 to 2007, and then met, married my husband, and within a year was moving to San Antonio and was out of the official workforce and just trying to catch my breath from mm-hmm. long period of taking care of very sick patients and being burnt out. And then my daughter was born, and now she's 10, and I have been writing um, primarily in the, along the intersections of uh, theology, uh, Christian theology, and how they intersect with social responsibility mm. um, and, and various things like that. Very cool. So let's start off with, uh, I mean, everybody can say the word epidemic probably without too many bumps in the road. Uh, right. Epidemiology and then epidemiologist, when I try to spell those, I always get the red squiggly line. Um, mm-hmm. So what <laughs> what is epidemiology? Uh, well, it's a it's a, a specialty of I, I would call it medicine that focuses on um, the causes of health outcomes and diseases and it looks at populations. Mm-hmm. So um, it's it's trying to study you know how diseases are distributed, what's their frequency, what's their pattern, what causes them, um, and you know it, it's data driven. So it's uh, systematic and, and relies tremendously on collecting data and trying to find the best methods for that. And it has broad you know, applications. So you have environmental epidemiology, infectious disease epidemiology, injury epidemiology. No so kid, like, injury epidemiology? Yeah. So, uh, for example, increased homicides in the community or uh, gun violence and the uh, um, you know, who is affected by them and what are their causes. Okay. See, that's, that's totally different than I was thinking like, you know, how many broke legs in a rodeo in San Antonio is what I was thinking. (laughs) 
Right. You know, and, and not a lot of people have even heard of the word. Um, so I think somebody used to, a, a friend of mine who was working on her PhD in epidemiology, she said, every time I tell people I'm getting a doctor in epidemiology, they ask me if I'm studying skin conditions. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Epidermis yes. is what they're thinking, you know. They know that would be dermatology. <laughs> okay, so you were real yes. real clear with me when we were talking that you are not a professional or you're not an epidemiologist by trade. Uh, Correct. That I am you, not. you have a master's uh, in it, but you went into uh, medicine as a physician's assistant where you're dealing with patients. Um, That's right. But the, you obviously you have a working knowledge. So. Um, one of the things that you tweeted recently that I, that caught my eye, maybe even it was uh, yesterday morning, right when I reached out to you, was um, a Twitter thread where a lady, I think in Spain, had translated an Italian doctor um, mm-hmm. who is in uh, Lombardy. I don't know if that's the way you say it or not, but um, mm-hmm. or near nearby there. Uh, and the uh, his explanation of what was happening there was drastically different. And you were like, y'all need to read this. This is kind of what's happening. Mm-hmm. So walk us through uh, really wherever you think is the best starting point. If you want to go back to Wuhan, if you if you want to go to South Korea, wherever you think is the best starting point to explain uh, how an epidemic becomes a pandemic or how these things get started mm-hmm. and, and what governments can do. I mean, you just start talking and I'll ask questions when I have them. Okay. I can't speak with tremendous detail because I'm just simply not that knowledgeable and haven't been following all the trends, you know, like the epidemiologists have been. Sure. Um, So I can probably speak broadly. And I think what's challenging about an infectious disease uh, event with a novel virus um, hitting, you know, a naive population, immuno-naive population, is a lot happens in terms of transmission Mm -hmm. before you can even act on it. And so China was very, as soon as they realized there was a problem, and this was a novel problem, they clamped down hard. I mean, they quarantined the entire city of Wuhan, which is huge, like millions of people. Wow. You know, and immediately I was thinking, you would never be able to do that here in the United States because, you know, we're a liberal democracy. And, (laughs) you know, I mean, and, and even in that scenario where you have a, you know, totalitarian regime that can just tell their people exactly what to do, where to go, where not to go, and they will enforce it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there was, was still trouble containing it. And by, by the time that they were, uh, by the time they were putting these measures in place, so many people were sick, it completely overwhelmed their medical system. You know, so that was a really clear indication of how this virus would behave in a population. Right. You know, if you didn't have measures put in place early enough. And we've seen that in Italy, um, you know, in places where people acted quickly, like other cities in China have mm-hmm. done better because they were like, we're getting on this immediately. Right. You know? And uh, no one's going anywhere. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, and I think that's that's part of the challenge is trying to contain this in our democratic society mm-hmm. that's so used to liberty. And having the freedom to come and go and not wanting, you know, I, I think I've seen people tweeting about martial laws next. You know, so we have this fear yeah. of governmental agencies coming in and robbing us of freedom more than we have a fear of the disease itself sometimes. Um, I was reading um, about the University of Dayton where they uh, 
the administration um, decided that they were going to go ahead and cancel school for the rest of the year and also close all on-campus housing. And within hours of that announcement, the students were in the street and like probably a total of a thousand people were all jam packed into the street together thinking last end of year party. (laughs) And it was like, so all that effort to try to promote safety and get everybody to go home and like you guys just completely undid all of that. Yeah. Um, when the thing that, that got me in the, the thread that you tweeted from the guy from Italy, who was, I believe, an ER doctor, mm-hmm. if I remember right, uh, was, so, yeah. uh, was what you mentioned that happened in Wuhan uh, early or when they realized that it was overwhelming things. And that is that mm-hmm. most hospital systems in developed countries, at least, uh, mm-hmm. are built based on an expectation of a certain capacity. And they right. expect, you know, X number of patients to be in the ICU. They expect X number of patients to be in the ER. And they study these things, and that's why they build the hospitals the sizes that they do with the number of rooms and the mm-hmm. capacity that they do. And that's so right. when somebody says, yeah, but, you know, the flu X, Y, Z, the flu this or the flu that, it's like, well, yeah, but the hospital system is built with an expectation that the flu is going to do this during the during mm-hmm. the flu season. Uh, it's not built with the expectation that on top of flu season, you're going to have as many patients or more. Um, how does the, stu- mm-hmm. how does epidemiology um, help or how does public health, let me just broaden it out a little bit. How does having yeah. a public health system like the CDC or South Korea has a centers, you know, for disease control and prevention and most more mm-hmm. developed China even has that. Um, mm-hmm. How do they look at a situation like that? So if you're, uh, if you're now not Italy, obviously, but if you're Germany now looking at Italy or if you're America, as we were supposed to be looking at China, what's the process to evaluate, uh, as much as you know, how to get ready for what's coming potentially? Yeah, I think that there were people already sounding the alarm years ago about uh, building capacity. Wow. And yeah, uh, if you look at some of the experts, um, Jeremy Commendike, he is a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development, and he has, you know, done global outbreak prepare, you know, preparedness work uh, around the world, and he was involved with like Ebola and things like that, mm-hmm. worked in the Obama administration. Um, he's a good person to follow on Twitter just because he provides really useful information um, as well as like data, and he knows what he's talking about. What's his name? So his name is Jeremy Conendike. It's K O N. Y N D Y K. Okay, cool. And uh, his yeah, tw- tw- Twitter handle is just at Jeremy Conendag, I believe. Um, so uh, basically, if you want to look at this from a public health standpoint, that we know now from looking at Wuhan, seeing you know Korea, Italy, we know how this disease um, spreads and operates in the population it overwhelms the existing systems, mm-hmm. right? So the key is simply uh, buying time. And um, there was a hashtag that's become viral. It's called flatten the curve. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to be very intuitive to people who don't look at, you know, uh, epidemic curves very often. But if you can imagine you have this big curve that's very high, all jammed into the beginning of um, transmission. Mm-hmm. And you got this huge spike in patients, and then you immediately overwhelm the hospitals, right? It's like, yes, we have the technology to, to deal with, you know, critically ill patients and all that, but we don't have the technology to deal with 
the sheer number of patients that we would expect right. if we don't start taking certain measures, right? So flatten the curve means you take the same number of cases, which we know will probably happen in- inevitably, and you spread them out over time to allow the hospitals to treat the critically ill. So I think right now the numbers are that the critical case, excuse me, the critical cases are going to make up about 5% of the total number of cases. And those are people that need to be treated in the ICU. They will be intubated and they will probably need weeks of hospitalization. Wow. So it's not, it's not like you're going into the hospital, you get on a ventilator, you get off. Now, they are going to need ground-the-clock care for weeks because of the type of pneumonia and, and, and lung damage that we're seeing. Wow. So yeah. if uh, so, the uh, I don't have his name in front of me, but the uh, Senate and Supreme Court doctor today uh, te- or yesterday testified. Apparently, um, it was a closed door session. NBC News reported that they had two sources that said that he estimated between seventy five and one hundred and fifty million Americans would get the disease, not would die, but would get coronavirus. Mm-hmm. Now, if if we go down on the death on the mortality rate, which is currently still, I think about 3.4%. So if we go down to one, if we just have mm-hmm. the most optimistic because we have good health care and whatever, if we're just the most optimistic, then that's on the low end, that would be what? 70, 750,000. Is that right? Uh, 750,000 people would uh, die from the disease on the low end. Mm-hmm. Then five percent, five percent of those, then not the one percent, but five percent of those, which is a whole lot more. That's three hundred, three, three hundred fifty million or something, would have to be in the hospital on extended care for weeks or months. Is that is my mm-hmm. math uh, close on that? I don't have a calculator, and I, I'm too tired to do math in my head. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. Uh, five, five times yeah. seven hundred fifty thousand to be three point three point five million. Mm-hmm. I think thereabouts. Uh, so we're talking about lots Mm -hmm. of overcapacity for a long time. And that really is, yeah. yeah. So that to me is, I mean, I was as skeptical as anybody else because I've been alive for a long time and I've seen these warnings that are coming, you know, this is the big one. This is the big one. Everybody's going to die. It's the black plague. It's the bubonic Mm -hmm. plague. And, Mm -hmm. you know, thankfully it, it never hit America like it hit some others, Mm -hmm. um, but when right. I started seeing that the, the real issue is becoming capacity and having basically doctors are having to determine who's going to live and who's going to, or who, who's even going to have a chance to live and die when they come to the hospital. Right. That right. Because be- you're talking about, yeah, being so maxed out that really, really sick people can't even be evaluated yeah. before they die. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's a, a worst case scenario. That's like a nightmare scenario. And so if you can like spread the disease out and slow it down over time, mm-hmm. Um, you can you can even tolerate having the same number of cases, but what you're trying to do is increase the bandwidth of the hospital to be able to do that. And while that's happening, you can do things to increase capacity, um, build out more hospitals, create more space here, you know, make more ventilators, that sort of thing. Or even, I mean, uh, China constructed almost overnight. I mean, even mass units. I mean, if, if people can survive, mm-hmm. you know, in the in war in a tent, then people can survive mm-hmm. temporarily uh, in a contained, you know, isolated type of a containment, even if it's outdoors. Um, right. So how do we spread it out then? If, uh, if the key to containing it, if it becomes overwhelming, is spreading it out, how do we do that? 
Yeah, the key at this point. Okay, so early on, you know, when you see all these cases can be accounted for, oh, this person was on this cruise ship. They're all like sequestered at mm-hmm. Lackland Air Force Base, uh, Air Force Base, or this person was had traveled to this area, and they can very specifically map out, you know, the contact and you know where they got it. That's really useful early on for containment. But as you start seeing community spread, um, it it's no longer possible to trace all that. Mm-hmm. And and not only that, but that becomes too time consuming. So what you start to pivot toward is uh, macro social distancing, like, okay, population, education, like you just tell people what they need to do. So cancel major events where people congregate. um, And if they don't cancel them, then you can, as a regular citizen, choose not to go. Because ultimately, we're concerned about protecting the elderly, Mm -hmm. the immunocompromised. And people who can't easily escape their situation, nursing homes, prisons, senior communities. And if, when you protect them, that means fewer people will be in the hospital. And, um, and so things like okay, make, making sure that you minimize your number of trips out of the house mm-hmm. you know, during the, the height of spread or, you know, like I think the latest case in Montgomery County here in Texas was a guy who um, he just tested positive to COVID, to the um, COVID, SARS-CoV, my brain is not working. <laughs> two, I think, right? SARS-CoV-2? Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, yes, um, <clears throat> excuse me, SARS-CoV-2. He just tested positive, and um, he had been at a cookout at the rodeo in Houston um, just at the end, like a week or two ago. Mm-hmm. So there have been all these people. I mean, I was watching my Instagram feed, and I had friends who, like, their children were riding roller coasters, wow. and <laughs> crowds <laughs> everywhere. And I'm just like, oh no, <laughs> you know. And today they have decided to cancel the rest of the rodeo. Fortunately. Goodness gracious. Um, but that's the kind of stuff. This is like community spread, and and the tricky thing is you can potentially be contagious before you exhibit symptoms. I think they think that the chances are low, but they're not zero. Yeah. Um, and some people can be infected and show no symptoms for quite a while. Um, yeah, I think, so I we're think still I read, trying to figure out. Mm-hmm. I think I read two weeks today. You can be infected for two weeks without showing any symptoms and be contagious mm-hmm. during that time. That's right. And they're still trying to figure out, okay, so what's the onset and duration of viral shedding and period of actual infectiousness? I mean, this lives in the lower respiratory tract, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and so the more we can practice social distancing, the more we can like um, avoid this huge spike. And and um, um, his name is Jeremy Conondike was just saying, that basically what's necessary is to put into place measures that seem to be far more extreme than the right. current circumstances suggest. Right. You know? I think that's what's challenging because people just think, oh, you're overreacting, you're being you're you're gonna induce panic. But that's not that's not the case. If you understand the epidemiology, then you understand why this is necessary. You know, and now we have data from multiple countries. Yeah, I've seen almost no uh, I've seen almost no medical personnel saying this is really nothing to worry about. 
um, you know, this is overblown. I've seen a few, like mm -hmm. there's this, I don't know, that one pop culture doctor dude that was on MTV or whatever is like, you know, it's all about the media, all about the media. Uh, well, you know, if 75 million Americans get coronavirus, it ain't the media that gave it to them. You know, <laughs> that's right. That's right. Um, so, uh, we for just a second, um, so the CDC, I don't know if the NIH actually has a role in any of this or not, other than promoting um, st materials that can be studied. I don't, I don't know, but the CDC obviously has a role in uh, helping stop the, uh, helping get the information out, helping, helping people understand uh, what's going on. So, in, in a normal, uh, in a normal event like this. Uh, do you have an, do you have any idea of what the time frame would be in which uh, the CDC would get information that this outbreak has happened? This is the you know this is the exponential spread. Uh, this is where it's happening next. We're seeing this replicated, and because of air travel, because of this, that, or the other, it could potentially be uh, in America in a week or whatever. Uh, what would be, as far as you know, their normal response, like publicly, not like behind the scenes, what they're talking about necessarily, mm -hmm. but publicly, what and when would they start saying, this is what you need to be worried about? That's a good question. And I don't think I, I can't speak for the CDC, actually, because I don't know about their operations. I have friends who work there, but um, they would they would be better. Or oh, you can call them up and get them a conference sources. call right quick. Yeah, I can. <laughs> 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 no, that's fine. I, I didn't know if you knew for sure. It just, it seems like uh, to me, so I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to delve into opinion mode here for just a second. It okay. seems like to me that um, the initial response that we had publicly uh, from the CDC and from the administration was one of, Hey, don't worry about this. It's going to be fine. Mm. Um, but <laughs> while that was the public thing that was being said, uh, as as well as some like actual misinformation, like everybody's getting testing and tests are readily available and all that kind of stuff, which w wasn't accurate. Um, right. What it was not. <laughs> what the population was seeing uh, wasn't the media hyping it, which obviously the media is going to hype anything that they can to you know generate viewership. But it wasn't necessarily the media hyping it. It was like oh, so you know Italy's closed off their whole entire country and nobody can go to the bathroom. You know it's like. South, yeah. South Korea has like multi-lane drive-throughs for testing and they got that ready in really a short amount of time. Uh, it's, you know, what happened mm -hmm. in China, this is what they decided to do to, to contain it. Uh, so there were all these like extreme measures, like you were talking about, were taking place mm -hmm. in other countries and we could see those happening, but the messaging right. that we were getting was, Hey, it's okay. Everything's going to be fine. Sure. We're going to be <laughs> down to right. zero really shortly. And I think yeah. it was that contrast of this is what we're hearing at home, but this is what we're seeing around the world. And the people who are in the mm -hmm. middle of it are saying, you need to act now. Uh, mm -hmm. I think that has what has caused like some of the, I'll just use the word anxiety. I don't know if that's the right one, but some of the anxiety about this whole thing is that what we're hearing and what we're seeing do not, do not go together. And what we're hearing is turning out to be not as accurate as, as what we're seeing from some of the reports overseas. So yeah. if that turns out to be the case and people are, you know, they're nervous, they're wondering, you know, there's a run on toilet paper or whatever. Um, so let's move into kind of how does the church respond? How do Christians respond when these things are going on? You have any ideas on that? Yeah, I mean, I mean there's so many ways um, we can think about it. I think of it as 
what is the most loving way to approach this and, uh, you know, whether as a community or on behalf of the community. And I always think of the most vulnerable people, Mm -hmm. you know, in our midst. I am just thinking of just my family. Okay. So I have one nephew who had a kidney transplant and is on immunosuppressive drugs. Mm -hmm. I have a niece who has a chronic viral infection that causes immunocompromise. My mother I got an autoimmune disease, 2014. She still has disability from that. And she is um, 70. She just turned 77. And my dad is 79. My mother-in-law is 83, and she has COPD. Wow. uh, It's a chronic lung disease. And, you know, they were spread out everywhere. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I think about them, and that's just my family. And so you also have all these other folks. I I spoke to um, somebody this week. She also has an autoimmune disease and is on three different immunosuppressive drugs. And she's a young woman. So, um, you know, all this misinformation, I think the damage um, is that it gives us a false sense of security so that we can't even make the proper decisions to protect them. And I think as a church, we have a responsibility to be better informed and to also inform others. I mean, my daughter came home today and she was trying to educate her classmates. One of her classmates is her family is about to take a cruise for spring break. Oh my goodness. She was, and she said, I don't care about the current size. It's going to be fine. It's like the cold. I don't care if I get it. And then, uh, you know, she has heard some crazy things from her classmates yeah. and there are, there are fourth graders. And I feel like children are a really good barometer for what's happening. Mm-hmm. Because um, they reflect back what the sort of dominant uh, swirling opinions are or misinformation. Uh, another classmate of hers said, um, all Asian people have the coronavirus. Oh, and she great. In class, and the te- teacher said, come here. <laughs> said, no, first of all, that's wrong. And I don't know where you heard that. She said, I heard it on the news. Oh, I was like, you did goodness. not hear that on the news. You know, and so she corrected the student immediately. Right. Um, and another student said, you know, the only reason why there's corona to that virus is because some stupid person ate a bat. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't know what they're hearing from their parents, but my daughter has been hearing different information from me. So she attempts to correct their oh, thinking. My and he goes, well, I don't really care. I'm going to do what I want. She said, you should care for other people who are like older and they're yeah. sick and you know, not to transmit it to the other people. You should think about somebody else. I would be curious to to know how many uh, people over seventy years old are on that cruise. Oh, I know. Goodness. So, at the end of the movie Contagion, I don't know if you've seen it or not. Um, no, it, it, it drills back. It it basically mimics it mimics this a little bit. It's it's highly contagious. People uh, get sick and die. The only thing that's really different is it's indiscriminate. So, young people die, old people die. Oh, okay. uh, but at the end, it does turn out to be bats. Uh, it does turn out to be bats in a market okay. uh, that I can't remember what. It, anyway, it had to do with a stew. And so I think uh, it had to do with food. And I think okay. the bat soup thing, that's probably what this kid was referring to. There was a theory that mm-hmm. this all started from bat soup that somebody ate. And I can't help but think that the bat soup thing probably came from the end of the movie Contagion. Uh, of course, it may be a thing uh. in some parts of the world. I don't know, but. <laughs> Um, well, you know, what's interesting is this outbreak happened in the season when bats are hibernating. Oh, interesting. Well, there goes the and bat so soup that, theory. Yeah, exactly. And and uh, there's other 
not to delve into conspiracy theories, but there's other folks who have described um, something called um, gain-of-function research mm-hmm. in virology, where people actually uh, recombine viral DNA and form these super viruses right. in order to create vaccines or treatments for them. Which is, you know, it terrifies me that people yeah. do that because if you don't have 100% containment, like 100% reliable containment, you shouldn't be doing that research. Yeah, there was, uh, you know, and, yeah, early on there was like, the, you know, this is this was released by the Chinese government in some secret lab, and I'm not I'm not saying yes or no, but it's just how some of the thinking goes. Uh, and then it was uh, when um, when everybody from the Iranian parliament started getting sick. It was like, well, uh-huh. they got, you know, some spy got in there <laughs> and served them all dinner. And uh, and this is what happened. Uh, oh. So there I mean, there's so much that's that mm-hmm. can't be verified that right. is latched onto, And then people ignore what can be verified, such yeah. as this is the spread rate. <laughs> this is who it hits. This is what happens with the hospitals. And it all becomes, well, the, the flu is worse. You know, it's like, OK, right. <laughs> And it's not in terms of mortality rate, right? Yeah. Um, and the fact that we have lived with the flu. I mean, influenza is bad. I'm not. Sure. I'm not going to minimize influenza. We we have a hundred thousand deaths from influenza in the United States every year. But um, and and you know, my mother-in-law lived with us for a while, and if um, I think one year my daughter had the flu, and we like we quarantined her to her room wow. to keep my mother-in-law from wow. being exposed. Yeah. So we're used to thinking in these terms, you know, and I think the church also, okay, let me back up a little bit. I feel like an endemic, not, not endemic, an epidemic like this is in some ways the great equalizer because it kind of reveals our universal vulnerability Mm -hmm. and it exposes some of the injustices that we live with, which you can consider our epidemics in slow motion. Mm. So I was reading another article today that there are 5,000 uninsured people in the state of Texas, and they are primarily in low-income jobs. They wait, can't wait, 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 to... wait, wait. There's got to be more than 5,000 uninsured people in the whole state of Texas. Did I say 5,000? Yeah. I, I thought I said 5 million, but... Five, um, oh, that makes more sense, 5 million. Yeah, if I said 5,000, that was totally, I misspoke. Um, but it, yeah, 5 million uninsured people in the state of Texas. Okay. And... Um, and some of them are just, they're just saying, I can't stay home. I can't not work. And I have to interact with customers. And, mm-hmm. you know, and so there are economic disincentives for them to practice social distancing. Right. And, and so um, one other thing that, you know, Jeremy Condendike mentioned was that we do have to mitigate the economic shocks of these measures um, because they do economic harm. And we have to do targeted economic help. Now, yeah. I don't know what that would be, what that would look like, but we have to, to kind of recognize that. That's interesting. One and, of the very first, uh, one of the very first Twitter threads I saw after this started gaining some steam, as far as people talking about their personal experiences and whatnot, was a guy who works in the fast food industry or the food industry. Mm-hmm. And he says, you can forget, uh, food workers staying home if they're sick. That is not how it works. And he went on this long explanation <laughs> about what, and it was insurance. They don't get paid time off. They don't get sick time. They don't have health insurance. And so he mm-hmm. said they are going to come to work because a lot of them also get fired if they don't come to work, even if they're sick. 
So they come to work sick. Mm -hmm. So he said, you, you, his, his thing was, you haven't seen how it's going to spread if people keep going out to eat because they're going to come to work Mm -hmm. sick. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. And so you have any thoughts about, uh, go ahead. Yeah. I was just thinking about how our collective failure, you can blame it on whatever you want. Sorry, that's my dog. Um, well, what's a, what's a podcast without a dog? What? What's a podcast without a dog barking? A friend of mine was talking yeah, about they, Zoom, dogs appearing on Zoom calls today. It's like a chorus in the background. That's right. That's right. No, um, I, I think just our collective failure to really address some of the chronic needs of the most economically vulnerable people in our population, mm-hmm. we find that that we end up paying the cost for that too. And there's so many people who pull it, I'm about to get um, a little bit political, but it's, there's no way around it. But, um, you know, so many people make, have all these reasons for why they don't want to do it this way, why you don't want to do it that way, you know, and this needs to be like individual and all that. But, but in the end, you really see how interdependent we are. Yeah. Like in, in all these ways. And I think it's, it's, I don't know, it's powerful. There's a, uh, yeah, there's, you know, I think you can, I think there's an argument to be made, you know, obviously we're kind of a free enterprise capitalistic system and all that, but I think there's an argument to be made that, Hey, if it works like this 99% of the time, mostly good, then that's cool. But, but if an emergency comes and we need to pump the brakes a little bit and figure out a way to address the emergency and Mm -hmm. maybe not, you know, maybe slow free enterprise or let the government have a hand in something so that the majority of people can survive. Um, Mm -hmm. I I think as, even as Christians, I think we find, you know, most of us would say there is a role of government where we argue is what is that role? Um, now some people would not say that, you know, they wanted a small, they wanted so small it can fit in a teacup and and not bother anybody. But I think, Mm -hmm. uh, biblically there is a role for government and that role, part of that role is doing good or making sure that good is done to the people right. in society. So there's a, a righteousness factor that scripture expects from governmental activity. And in a situation yeah. like this, where you have potentially millions of people who either lose their jobs or they can't go to work and they're at a, a, an industry that doesn't pay them to not go to work, but all the health mm-hmm. officials are saying you really need to stay home or a lot of people are going to die. Then right. there should be, and maybe there will be, I, I'm not going to say there won't be, but maybe Congress will say, okay, this is what we need to do. We need to get this amount of money available for these people until everybody mm-hmm. can go back to work. Because I think some governments around the world are already doing something like that. Um, oh, okay. I, yeah, I do think that there is a balance, even in a free market system, where Christians can say, well, hey, if if 20% of the people who depend on hourly income are being told to stay home so that they won't either a get a disease or be spread a disease, then there mm-hmm. needs to be a combined effort to make sure that these people don't lose what they have and don't become sick themselves or lose their place, yeah. you know, to live that kind of thing. So I do think that there are ways that we could at least think about it that are productive, even if uh, Judy and Marty can't do anything about it personally. Uh, but what Judy and Marty can do something about is our own personal responsibility. Uh, so you have any thoughts on what individual Christians or even Christians in church groups could do mm-hmm. during times like these, especially if people are told, hey, don't go anywhere for three months. If you're over 60 years old, you need to buy a lot of toilet paper and stay home. What what can we do? Uh, you been thinking about any of that? 
Yeah, uh, we're having conversations like this just within our own community group and our church, you know, and I think the pastor was starting to think that he would make the announcement potentially this Sunday to tell everyone over a certain age to stay home and be safe, uh, catch the church service on live stream, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and he's like, I can't make them stay home, (laughs) you know, um, and canceling church services altogether, I know probably feels a little bit too radical right now. But as we were saying earlier, those are the kinds of measures that we need to do in order to prevent that huge spike. I was thinking, um, what, what, no, no, it's it's okay. Um, what, what do we do? For instance, if, if you've got a, you know, 20 senior adults in your church, and even if they decide to come to church, they decide that's the only place they're going to go every week. They're going to go to church and that's it. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, how mm-hmm. does the church then, how does the rest of the body get, help them get groceries? Uh, how do yeah. we make sure that mm-hmm. they have the medicines that they need? How do we make mm-hmm. sure that if something breaks at their home, that they're able to get it repaired without somebody coming in to infect them? Um, yep. you know, what yep. are the, how do we think about how we in our own, uh, gospel communities look out for each other and help the most vulnerable in our own midst if they decide to self-quarantine for instance because they're concerned mm-hmm. that their COPD or their yeah. cancer diagnosis or whatever is potentially going to you know be um, complicated by coronavirus um, mm-hmm. that's that's what I've been yeah I think about. you do you basically do like a needs assessment alongside the risk assessment oh good know? yeah and so you find out, okay, like if you can't go anywhere, what are the things that you need? What do you pick up? Are your medicines? And um, do you order them by phone? And some of them may have trouble using a computer. You can help with that. So basically just connecting people with like a point person within the church who will make sure that this couple gets taken care of or this senior citizen living alone gets taken care of. And a good bit of that happens even with the community groups that they're part of. But some people are homebound mm-hmm. um, and they can't necessarily do that. And there's those practices in place um, already for them. But, you know, if you're starting to tell, say like a large increase in, in the percentage of people who can't be at church, you know, and can't really leave with, uh, without feeling at risk, then how can we help them, Yeah, you know, not, not be such a burden. So we can lighten that burden a lot just by very basic, I'll help you run an errand or, you know, deliver something, you know, I mean, I also don't want to just be like, Oh, everyone's going to order Instacart, you know, right. <laughs> <laughs> and we're sending out these poor other people, like wait, hourly wage workers out into the world to deliver, you know, groceries to the privileged. You know? Oh man. But the so, good, a good point yeah. about that is in the early, I mean, this is, this is probably well known, but one of the ways that the early church made their mark in the world was they didn't leave Rome during the plague. They they stayed mm. and ministered to those who were dying. Some of them died oh. themselves, but their their attitude was, we believe in the resurrection. So if the plague mm. kills us, it's no big deal. And so that was what caught the eye of the emperor. These these Christians are more compassionate toward the Romans than the pagans, you know, the Romans themselves mm-hmm. were. Uh, Spurgeon and the... The outbreak of cholera, I guess, in the 1800s, I guess. I don't know. Um, outbreak of cholera in England. He continued to minister, uh, continued to visit the sick, continued to do all those things that today people would be, af- you know, almost Christians today would be afraid to do because they might get mm-hmm. sick. 
Um, so there, there's kind of the flip side that, that especially those of us that are not in the, uh, like myself, who are not in the high risk category. So I don't have a, you know, any kind of an ongoing mm-hmm. illness. I'm not in the age range yet that would be considered mm-hmm. at most risk. Um, you know, I have to live my life as in, I'm, I'm not going to intentionally try to infect myself, but I have the hope of the resurrection. Right. And if I can be a witness to Christ by ministering to the sick, then I don't just have that as an obligation. I have that as a calling. Right. No, I agree with that. I'm trying to figure out logistically. Um, I think what's tricky is COVID-19 is an airborne mm-hmm. transmission and, um, it's not just being available to care for them, but then putting yourself uh, at risk of becoming a transmission yeah. agent, yeah. you know, to others. So what's the distance? Is it six feet? Is that the distance you're supposed six to stay feet. back? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Six feet. Cause uh, you know, transfer via air droplets from sneezes and coughs. Yeah. So, um, I mean, even then, I mean, just thinking about it, you deliver something, you put it on their door, you knock and you leave. I mean, there's, there's lots of, creative ways to mm-hmm. not be in somebody's business, you know, <laughs> when you're trying to right. minister to them. <laughs> That's right. Exactly. And then, you know, be sensitive about, you know, what you've touched. So if you're delivering something, uh, wipe it down, yeah. you know, with a sanitizing wiper, yeah. um, alcohol, you know, rubbing alcohol. That's all I could find. I couldn't find hand sanitizer. So I bought a bunch of rubbing alcohol. Yeah. Those Clorox um, wipes work well too, as long as you can find any. Right. Yeah. Cool. All right, uh, Judy. What is your Twitter handle? Uh, Judy Dominic, and it's I C K, right? I C K. Yeah. yeah. So my guest today on Uncommentary has been Judy Dominic. We've been talking about um, in pan- pandemics, epidemiology, uh, epidemics, and a Christian response to some of these things. And so uh, I hope you'll follow her on Twitter. You can follow me at Marty Duran. Uh, you can follow at Uncommentary Pod for the podcast. Always helpful if you'll share. Uh, if you'll rate and review in your favorite podcatcher, that always helps too. And uh, until the next time, this is Marty Dern for Uncommentary. <laughs>